0: Well, like Steve said at the the beginning of our service this evening, this week is our last week in the book of Judges. And as you might have picked up from the couple of readings that we've just had, these last few chapters are a little bit different from what we've had so far in the book. You see, in in some ways, uh, Paddy preached for us last week, and in some ways, that could have been the end of the book of Judges. Uh, the, The death of Samson marks the end of the Judges' story. He's the last in that long line of flawed rescuers. And so we ended on, a, on what was quite a bleak note, a pretty hopeless note. From the very best to the very worst, each of these human judges that we've looked at has failed, haven't they? The downward spiral that Steve mentioned has continued week on, week after week. But though he is the last of the judges samson is not actually where the book ends there are still these four chapters left for us to go and these chapters they they break away from that normal pattern of rebellion retribution rescue that we've seen repeated throughout the book Think of it this way, up until now we've been given the big picture view, the bird's eye view of Israel's rebellion against the Lord. We've heard that repeated phrase come up again and again through the chapters, the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We've seen that repeated and we've seen the consequences but now, as we come to these final chapters, it's like the, the camera zooms in. It's as though the author of Judges wants to show us just what that evil really looked like. And so here we get these, this kind of ground-level, detailed view of what life in Israel was like during the time of the Judges. And as you've picked up already, it paints a grim picture. As one commentator puts it, these are some of the most unrelentingly miserable chapters in the whole Bible. But as well as describing the the desperate situation of Israel, the author of Judges also wants us to be in no doubt why that was the case. And so as, as he draws the book to a close, we find another repeated phrase pop up in these four chapters. It was there in chapter 17, uh, chapter 17 verse 6, there'll be a bit of flicking this evening, just uh, make sure you can see chapter 17 verse 6 says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. It comes up again at the start of chapter 18, in 18 verse 1, In those days Israel had no king. Again in 19 verse 1, In those days Israel had no king. And then finally, the very last verse of the book, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Throughout these final, incredibly dark chapters, we're reminded again and again that what we are seeing, what is happening, is the result of Israel's rebellion against the Lord. You see, the point is that Israel, they do have a king. God is their king, but they've rejected him. They've abandoned the Lord, as we've seen, and they have run after other gods. And so these chapters, they show us where that leads. And we can see it in two main stories. The first story comes in chapters 17 and 18. We just read 17, but we're going to look at 17 and 18 together. And there we see the story of DIY religion. DIY religion. In 17 verse 1, we meet a wealthy Israelite man called Micah. We know Micah's wealthy because in verse 2, we discover that he's stolen 1,100 shekels of silver from his mum. We don't deal in shekels anymore, but this is a big pile of cash that he's nicked. And so unsurprisingly, Micah's mum is a little bit upset. She curses the thief who's stolen her money, whoever they may be. Micah hears about this. He he gets a bit scared and so he decides to own up. He goes back to mum and confesses what he's done. And so straight away we can see that although this guy Micah, he might be a thief, he is a religious thief. He believes in God and so he's worried about this possible curse that might be coming his way. Micah is religious and so is the rest of his family. In verse 3, his mum quickly forgives her precious little son, and not only does she forgive him, uh, but she asks God to bless him. Uh, but then, in verse four, having having prayed to the Lord, having done something that sounds very religious, she takes all the silver that he stole and gives it back to him to make an idol. Not so good. And it gets worse because in verse 5, Micah then adds a few more idols to his collection. And then he makes one of his own sons, the private priest of his own little religion. And so can you see Micah and his mum, they, they might sound religious. They might look like they listen to the Lord. They might speak about the Lord. But the reality is they're doing everything the way they want to do it. They are ignoring God. Ignoring everything that he said about making idols. Ignoring what he said about where to worship him. Ignoring what he said about who should be priests. And so rather than obedience, Micah and his mum have opted for convenience. This is DIY religion at its worst. This is making God in your own image. Trying to fit him into a, a convenient box to suit your needs. It's God on your terms, not his. That becomes even clearer when, in verse 7, we meet a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, This guy is, this Levite, he's looking for a place to stay. And in verse 9, he meets Micah. Uh, Micah quickly spots an opportunity to upgrade his homemade religion with a real live priest, a Levite. So verse 10, he says, live with me. Be my father and my priest. Shockingly, this Levite agrees to the weird kind of private employment scenario. And so Micah concludes in verse 13, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. In other words, now I can be sure that God will do what I want. I've done all the right things, I've I've performed all the right rituals, I've even got a Levite priest. God is in my pocket. He'll do what I need. He'll do what I want. And so can you see straight away that whether it's Micah, his mum, or his pet priest, the picture we're given in chapter 17 is one of man-made religion. It is DIY spirituality. That phrase again, Israel has no king. It has abandoned the true and living God, and so everyone does what they want. They make it up. And the same thing can happen today, can't it? Society doesn't have to abandon religion to reject the Lord. People both inside and outside the church can look and sound very religious, but have absolutely nothing to do with the true and living God. Which means right at the start in chapter 17, a big question as we come towards the end of this book in Judges is this. Am I worshipping the God who has revealed himself in his word? Or am I worshipping the God I have made up in my head? In Judges chapter 17, religion is on the rise. But it's religion on Israel's terms. It's religion that seeks to control and and manipulate God, to remake him in their image, to remake him in a way that seems comfortable and convenient. It is religion that feels easy and looks exciting. But as we're about to see, it is religion that ends in disaster. That's what we see in chapter 18. We We didn't read that, but we're going to look at it now. In chapter 18, we meet the Danites, We met these guys right back in chapter 1. They were the ones who had failed to obey the word of the Lord and they had failed to drive out the Canaanites from the land. And so now, right at the end, we meet them again and they are still searching for a place to settle down. 18 verse 2, they send out some spies who stumble across Micah's home and discover his pet priest. Just like Micah, the Danites are also very religious. And so they decide to make the most of this unexpected opportunity. Look at 18 verse 5. They, they ask the priest whether their trip, whether their mission is going to be a success. Don't worry, says the pretend priest. God approves of what you're doing. You just carry on, Danites. You've got nothing to worry about. Reassured by the priest, the Danites move on. And in verse 7, they arrive at the luxurious land of Laish. It's prosperous, it is unprotected, they see. And so it's an easy target for them. This will do, they think. Forget what the Lord said, this is where we're going to live. And so in verse 11, they gather their troops and they prepare for battle. They set off to to take this new land and on their way they make one more pit stop at Micah's house. This time it's not a bit of friendly chat they want to have. If you look at verse 17, they barge in, they steal Micah's shrine and take his idols and they bribe his priest to serve them rather than Micah. Come and join us, they say. Don't serve just his one family when you can serve the Danites. The priest is convinced. He's pretty fickle. And so with their lucky religious charms on board, they head off for battle. And so we read in verse 27. Then they took what Micah had made and his priests and went on to Laish, against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword. And burned down their city. Verse 28: the Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. Can you see the point the author's making in these two chapters? Can you see where, where DIY religion ends up? With a bunch of religious sounding, idol worshipping. People massacring Israelites. And as verse 28 points out, the Danites, they were one of the tribes of Israel. They were descendants of Dan. And then in verse 30, if you look there, we discover that the Levite priests they use, he's actually a a grandson of Moses, of all people. These were meant to be God's people. These were the ones, uh, Joshua, and at the start of Judges, that had set out to conquer the land, to live in God's place and enjoy God's blessing as they lived under God's rule. They were meant to live their lives for Him. But they rejected that. They decided to remake God in their image, to reinvent their own religion. And all the while convincing themselves that the Lord was with them. That he was pleased with their plans. That he would bless their battles. That he celebrated their choices. What if Micah say? now I know the Lord will do what I want. Because I've got myself a priest. They thought the Lord was with them, but the opposite was true. The point at the end of Judges is that within a few generations of Moses... Israel has completely abandoned the Lord. And now they look just like the idol-worshipping, violence-loving people around them. The downward spiral has reached rock bottom. But it gets even worse. It gets worse because in the next story, we find that for Israel, DIY religion leads to DIY morality. Uh, That's chapter 19, turn there with me, because in chapter 19 we know that we're off to a bad start when the first people we're introduced to are a Levite and his concubine. A concubine is a a little bit like a second wife, except with a lot less rights. And whilst they were perfectly normal and acceptable in pagan culture of the day, this was not the way that God had designed marriage to be. A husband was meant to have one wife woman one wife not a collection of them but polygamy is not the biggest problem here because in verse two we find out that the concubine has been unfaithful to her husband and so she runs back to her parents home the levite follows her and persuades her to come back with him but they don't leave immediately because the concubine's um, Father, the the Levite's father-in-law, convinces them to stay on for a little bit of hospitality. Maybe he's trying to repair some of the damage caused by his promiscuous daughter. However, by day three, the Levite has had enough, and so he takes his concubine and sets off home. Night closes in, and so they they decide to find somewhere to stay. They reject the first town in verse 12 because it's still under pagan control. And so obviously that's a bad place to stop. But in verse 14, they arrive at the Israelite town of Gibeah. Uh, Initially, stopping here seems like a much more sensible thing to do. But as soon as they arrive, we get the feeling, don't we, that something is wrong. Nobody offers them a place to stay. And as they sit alone in the town square... You get that ominous feeling that something bad is about to happen. Eventually an old man wanders out and takes pity on them, offers them a bed for the night. And again, it sounds a bit worrying, doesn't it, when he says in verse 20, whatever you do, don't don't stay in the square. So bad about the square, we wonder, we find out in verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. It's shocking, isn't it? This is clearly a wicked place. This Israelite town is not the safe haven that the Levite thought it was. But it gets worse. Because then in an attempt to escape the mob, the Levite grabs hold of his concubine and throws her out of the door. Verse 25, she is repeatedly raped and abused through the nights. The mob let her go at dawn, but by then she's barely alive. She manages to crawl back to the old man's house, but she dies before she can even knock at the door. And what is the Levite doing? Are He's sleeping. The Levite is getting a good night's sleep. He has forgotten all about his concubine, and he is resting peacefully in his bed. Verse 27, he gets up the next morning, he opens the door to leave, and as he steps out, he basically trips over the body. Get up, he says. But there's no answer. So he just picks her up, slings her on his donkey, and goes on his way. It is another sickening scene in this book of Judges. Here is one of God's supposed priests, but he is a man without a single ounce of love or compassion in his heart. In fact, the only thing that he does seem to care about is his reputation, his honour. Uh, Clearly angry at the men of Gibeah for treating him this way. Verse 29, he decides to cut up the body of his concubine and send it around the 12 tribes of Israel. Look at what these people have done to me, is his message. It is a truly horrific act, but it, it has its intended effect. Because for the very first time since the beginning of the book, the tribes of Israel unite together. They come together for battle, except this time it's not against the Canaanites. No, it's against their own people. It's against the men of Gibeah. Israel unites, they completely destroy the town. Men, women, and children are put to the sword. And then in chapter 21, which we've not read, but, but there you'll see that things get even more twisted. We're not going to look at it in detail this evening, but basically the Israelites realized that in attacking the men of Gibeah, they have nearly wiped out the tribe of Benjamin, the process. Those are the, the people that were living in the town. They've nearly wiped out a whole tribe, and that's not good, they think. That's not right for the people of God, and so they, they try and fix the mess by slaughtering another town to give the wives of that town to the, men, the remaining men of Benjamin. But because there are more men than they expected, they then allow yet more men to go and find more women from another town to abduct them and rape them and bring them. So the tribe of Benjamin can continue. But only through the the massacre of others, only through the rape of others, that is how Benjamin will survive. The whole thing is completely twisted. It is completely messed up. And that is where it ends. The big point of what happens is that when God's people choose to live as though they are king, when they turn their back on the Lord and do as they want, this is where it ends. So chapter 21, verse 25, the final verse of the book, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. When God's people reject God's rule, the result is they end up just as violent, just as idolatrous, just as sinful as the very worst of their pagan neighbours. And so these final chapters, they warn us that things can go very wrong, very quickly for God's people. Moses' generation were far from perfect, but they would have been horrified by what their grandchildren's generation were doing, what they had become. And all because they forgot the Lord and did as they saw fit. That was them. What about us? What can we take from this strange and often shocking book of the Bible? Well, hopefully there's a lot that God has spoken to you from his word but I think there are two big implications that we can take as we close the first is to see that our greatest danger is ourselves if you can remember right back at the very beginning of the series we thought about the question what is the greatest threat to the church today is it secularism is it materialism is it government policy is it school curriculum what is it what what is the threat that we face I hope the Judges has helped you to see that in the end, the answer isn't something out there. It's not some enemy that's going to be too strong for us, or or more importantly, too strong for God. No, Judges has shown us that the greatest threat to the people of God was and is themselves. The danger is within It's in our hearts that we are drawn away from the Lord. It's in our hearts that we run after the empty promises of false gods. It's in our hearts that we think that our life is best lived with me in charge, doing whatever I see fit. But as we've seen again and again, rejecting God and living by our own rules always leads to disaster. Despite what the world would like us to think, following our hearts rather than listening to our Lord is the most dangerous thing we can do. The greatest threat we face is ourselves. Which is why the second thing the book of Judges shows us is both wonderful and crucial for us to grasp. That is that our only saviour is Jesus. Jesus. You see, the big point of Judges is that we need rescuing from ourselves. That is what the cycle that we've seen is all about. It's why the book repeatedly shows us that even the best of Israel's deliverers are flawed. Because yes, they can can save Israel from an external enemy, but they can't save Israel from themselves. And so as we've seen, every time Israel are rescued, it doesn't take long, does it, before they plunge right back into the sin that got them there in the first place. Which means the book leaves us longing for this this better rescuer. This one who can rescue us, not from the enemy out there, but from the sin in here. And again, as we've seen throughout the series, the only one who can do that is God. Only God can Truly deliver his people. Only God can save us from our sin. Only God can remake a rebellious heart and restore us to a right relationship with himself. Only God can save. And the wonderful news is that is exactly what he has done in sending his son Jesus. As we've seen so clearly in Mark's gospel on Sunday mornings, Jesus is God himself come to the rescue. Jesus is the one who can do what we are unable to do to save us from ourselves, to save us from sin. And so you see, the the message in the end, the message in Judges is that whoever we are, whatever we've done, wherever we're from, whatever we will do, we all need Jesus. And we will always need Jesus. Jesus. Because only he can save. And so as we close, let me ask you. Have you come to him? Are you trusting in Jesus? The true judge, the real rescuer, the only deliverer? Or if you're honest, are you just doing what is right in your own eyes? Judges has shown us that we can be our own worst enemy but that Jesus is God's own rescuer. So will you trust him? Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, your word convicts and your word comforts us. Father, please help us to have ears to hear what you have said to us today. Help us to take it to our hearts. And Father, now as Steve comes and leads us in a time of confession, please let us be honest with ourselves. Let us look into the mirror of your word. And let us see our Saviour. Amen.